Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mangum Talks TV. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. We are continuing our review of HBO's Chernobyl. This is episode three, titled Open Wide, O Earth. It's a bear of an episode. We do a little bit of housekeeping, then we're going to jump into our recap. We'll do best line, and then Spencer wraps up with a Wikipedia spiral of the week. Um, I mean, really... I mean, we have a couple episodes of Whiskey on the Weekend. Check those out. They're a lot of fun. We had from, one from Con of Thrones, which was a blast. But really what I want to hear about is what's going on in Mangum Reads. Specifically, I hear there's a little Harry Potter happening. We have broadened our horizons a bit on Mangum Reads. Uh, we're still continuing through our mystery thriller, The Likeness by Tanya French. Uh, uh, a, nice mix, a nice series following the murder squad in Ireland as they investigate various crimes. A bit of a change of pace for us. But we also decided that... Given that one of our three members is a very passionate Harry Potter fan, one of our other members is a pretty cynical bastard who likes to make fun of Harry Potter, and I've never actually read them or seen more than one and a half of the films, it might be interesting to do a chapter-by-chapter -chapter discussion of them. So we've started in on the very first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, to go chapter-by-chapter -chapter through it, addressing such things as our favorite character moments, our favorite invented language, and our favorite muggle moments, among other things. So uh, we've gone. We've done one chapter so far, which I think might be up. And I, for a person who has knows so little about Harry Potter, I apparently mispr mispronounced the word Horcrux. Uh, am quite enjoying it so far. No, it's not up. BJ is getting very. He, he's hoarding the recordings mm -hmm. so that he can have content when y'all miss a week, which I guess ah. is smart. Uh, I'm probably not going to do that with this podcast. <laughs> so we're recording Different on a Friday, uh, August first. It'll be out probably August third. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's jump into episode three of Chernobyl. Halfway point of the series, we only have five episodes. Um, I'll start with a recap. You ready? Well, let's let's even just start with the title. The title, okay. Open Wide, O Earth, is just great. I love that title. I love the almost biblical connotations that are attached to it. Is, there any, is mm -hmm. there any specific reference to that I should know about? I mean, I kind of get the, the gist of what they're going for, but I didn't know if it was like a a reference to a particular story, allegory, something? It sounds very, very familiar, but I do not, it's not catching me offhand as I'm Googling this in the background while you talk. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this show is thoughtful enough. I would be surprised if it wasn't a specific reference to something. Now, it might be obscure enough that in a, you know, initial Google, you know, um, search, you're not going to find it. Um, I actually would be interested to listen to the episode, the podcast, the, the HBO's commission that I've mentioned multiple times on this podcast and see if he talks about it. The guy who, the showrunner, uh, who also wrote every episode, which is impressive to me. Did you get, get anything? It is a translation of a Sanskrit Hindu burial ritual. Open <sighs> wide, O earth, press not heavily on him. Be easy of approach. Hail him with kindly aid. As with a robe, a mother hides her son. So shroud this man, O earth. Oh, that is perfect, considering where the episode ends up. Spoiler alert. Okay. Yeah. So we start with very ominous music playing. Um, the divers, they are still down. They're trying to empty the tanks. Of course, this is, and we touched on this in the last episode, this is a situation where the core is melting down. It's definitely going to melt down through the bottom of the facility and probably even farther. We, we deal with that later. But if it hits these tanks, they're going to be another thermal explosion, which potentially could destroy all three of the remaining nuclear reactors in Chernobyl and could decimate half of Europe and Asia, uh, mm -hmm. which would just be absolutely awful. So these heroic, and I don't mean that in any sarcastic way, folks, are down there. We hear the decimeters going off. There's heavy breathing. They're trying to get the flashlights to work. They finally do get one of the 
flashlights to work, they push forward through various hallways. What struck me here is they seem to know where they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also point out that they're going very fast, which is a very good, uh, um, I think, uh, detail here, considering the fact that we know that these guys lived. We know these guys lived, and as you pointed out in the last episodes, we also know that the fact that they have working flashlights is a necessary introduction for the sake of being able to see them on television. In real life, they did this in pitch black. Did it in pitch black? And there was water at times up over their head. Here it looks like it's just waist high. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we cut to Boris and Legasov. Uh, they're waiting. Boris asks if it's possible the water has already killed them. Legasov never really gives good news in this episode. <laughs> and he just says yes. Yeah, could be. And then Boris says, then what? It doesn't work? And Legasov's kind of like, yeah. Like, he doesn't answer, but he's thinking, yeah, sure. <laughs> basically a circumstance of this is the plan this is the one plan in the event that they die I guess we send more because that's what we got again ominous music plays as we watch the divers work their way through the halls cut to outside we see a door we hear a banging and the divers come out they pump their fist and that's an indication that they were able to drain the tanks hallelujah thank goodness this is at one of the most uplifting parts of the show there's not many mm-hmm. <laughs> but we do have at least a moment here where three people help save millions and millions of lives you, you i think you can probably count on one hand the number of times that like smiles over the course of the show this is one of them right here yeah and they, they i love this very russian them they immediately hand the divers vodka i like to point <laughs> out I would like to point out to you spencer they do this before getting their clothes off no no these guys are still radioactive as shit no, there are priorities. They need their drink. <laughs> Boris claps, but Legasov looks on and then I'm in pity, maybe? Yeah. It's not clear. He smiles at first, but then his face kind of falls as he does. I think he just feels guilt. Because mm-hmm. again, you know, I, I don't blame Legasov for this. But he did not know that, the, he did not consider that the tanks would be full when he had this plan to drop sand and boron into the fire that's in the, you know, the exposed reactor core. Which, it, uh, which pushes the heat down, obviously, and yeah. it would melt down into the tanks. Apparently, for me, even his description of when he was telling them, um, I'm suddenly blanking the name of the female scientist. What's her name? It starts with a K. Uh, Yulana Komova or something like that. Yeah. But I, I call her Yulana. That works. Yulana. Uh, I mean, it seems like he was even relying on inaccurate information that the plant told him. So he even took the time to check. He was just misled. Right. Yeah. And then we have the all-knowing Yulana who comes in and just goes, nope, you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, cut to hospital number six. Komiuk. Komiuk. I can't get over the name hospital number six. I just, <laughs> you know, it's like in the NBA, like they've started putting like uh, advertisements on jerseys and there's these purists out there that are like, oh, it's ruining the game. That's mm-hmm. ruining the game. Like th- they are so against advertisements. You can't even have a name for a hospital. It's no. hospital number six. I mean, this would be like, you know, focus on North Carolina. The Carolina Panthers stadium was just named the place where the Panthers play rather than Eric, whatever it is, Erickson stadium or now or something. You know what? You know who would like that name? Mm. Levi. <laughs> no ambiguity. No debate. No, Levi, no. Levi would be like, yeah, that's the place with the Panthers. But I'd be like, that's what they named it. He's like, well, that's what it is. Yeah. There's, there's no need <laughs> for follow-up information there. You got it right there. We're at hospital number six in Moscow. This is April 30th, 1986, four days after the explosion. Ludmila Ingdatenko um, walks in and asks to see her husband, Vasily Ignatenko. A nurse or receptionist clarifies that she's uh, in to see a patient from Chernobyl. So basically, she the nurse just goes, Chernobyl? And she says, yeah. She says, no, you can't visit, no exceptions. Clearly, this is a 
a rule in hospital number six. Anybody who came in from Chernobyl, no one can see them. For damn good reason, as we find out later. Ludmilla starts name dropping. She drops Major Buroff. That didn't seem to matter. Mm-hmm. Then she greases the bombs a little bit, Spencer. Mm. Uh, well, something for you, something for the family. Yeah, and clearly this is just part of how the economy works to a certain degree because there's no surprise here. There's just, okay, money's out on the table. She looks at it, she slides it, you're in. That's, there's apparently a bit, of a, a bit of a dark economy that's happening to make this everything work. I would say uh, there's a, a little bit of a dark everything to make this work. Yeah. Um, Ludmilla then gets in, talks to a nurse uh, or maybe a doctor. I, I can never tell. Um, they're, they're very... Uh, they're not specific with the roles of the the people in the hospitals, but it, it is. But it, what's interesting is they're not specific with the titles, but they are specific in the way that they show you the knowledge base of the individual healthcare providers, right? Because yeah. there are some people that immediately you know are fucking stupid. For instance, I'm going to put milk on a radiation burn. Then you have some people like this, like you know this woman who seems to know it's really a bad idea for you to go in there, but. She Ludmilla starts begging and she fumbles with her purse and finally the lady gives in. And she says, put your purse away. I'm not taking your money. She says, you can go in. You can see him for 30 minutes, not a minute more. And you cannot touch him in any way. Mm-hmm. You're not pregnant, are you? She says, no. Well, we know that's that's a lie. And we I don't, do we actually literally know it at this point? We've seen her throw up before. Um, rub in the belly. I don't know. Rub in the I, belly. I, but yeah. the, mo- the look she gives after she says this and the doctor goes away tells us all we need to know. Tells us volumes. As you can see very visibly, she just consciously lied. Spencer, why do you think she lied about this at this moment? She figured it would stop her from getting in the room. God, isn't she thinking about her kid? What the fuck, Lumilla? She, um, she has a one-track mind right now. She wants to be with and see her husband. And that is an understandable drive if, it, if actively suicidal under these circumstances. So she walks in a room and what? Shocker. He seems okay. Yeah, he's got great. some burns, but he's, he's up. He's about... She hugs him. He clearly is sore, but they do end up hugging fairly tight. And when they're hugging, the haunting music plays. And my notes say, in all caps, God damn it, Ludmilla, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, it said, these guys look fine. They're, they, I mean, they've looked like they've been through a bit of a meat thresher in terms of their faces, but they're playing cards. They're having smokes. They're enjoying drinks. It's just some buddies hanging out. And you're thinking, okay, this radiation sickness ain't too bad. Yep. And we, let's, let's just, let's just be the, let's just no let's just be the ignorant watcher here for okay. a little while and just say hey okay he looks okay yeah happy um, ending yeah. <laughs> cut to a helicopter and it looks like they're measuring the radiation levels near the core uh Legosoff is on the ground and he is clearly pissed about something he's pissed a lot in this episode uh he asked boris, boris who decided something and when he didn't he wasn't specific and boris says well it wasn't me um, Legasoff goes on to explain that the evacuation zone was only 30 kilometers when it should have been much, much wider. Mm-hmm. Uh, drops. I'm going to nominate this for potential line of the episode. Ready for it? Please. Forgive me. Maybe I've just spent too much time in my lab, or maybe I'm just stupid. Is this really the way it all works? An uninformed, arbitrary decision that will cost who knows how many lives made by some apparatchik, some career party man? Boris, I'm a career party man. Watch your tone, comrade. <laughs> So it's yet again another example of Legasov pushing the limits. Um, yeah. But it is interesting to me that he can he can completely castigate a career party man to a career party man mm-hmm. and not have some sort of punishment for it. So again, we're getting more and more examples, and we get more in this episode of Boris really kind of going native here. Yeah, I mean, he clearly takes a certain degree of offense, but at the same time, he's recognizing this is a dumb idea. 
I also looked up a stat. You want to know statistically how dumb an idea this is based on how big the zone is now? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so they said 30 square kilometers. They said, I think they said was the zone that they had at that time. or Some 30 kilometer relative zone. Today, the monitored and excluded area in Ukraine is 2,600 square kilometers. Woo! That actually, I think, tracks with a number we see later in the episode. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> so... Tells you go. clearly that they were aiming as low as possible with a very arbitrary number when they originally built that exclusion zone. And that, that was the original zone. It's just grown by necessity since then. Well, you know that the only reason that was the original zone, because they did some backhanded fucking napkin math and yeah. decided... <laughs> Decide, but and decided that's the amount of, uh, you know, the 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 size that it could be, mm-hmm. for nobody to notice. Yeah, that almost certainly it is in my mind. Is that okay? That's the area covering Priapet. That's the area covering the town of Chernobyl and a few other outlying communities. Good, great. That's all the people that, kn- that know about this. That's the zone. General Pikalov comes in to explain that they have a visual that the fire is almost out. This is like good news. Um. There's also been a reduction in ionine-131 and cesium-137 emissions. Mm-hmm. In short, the sand and boron are working. But as we, as Yulana pointed out and as uh, Legasov anticipated, that comes with a cost. And that means the temperature is rising. And there's a spike in zirconium-95, which is from the cladding on the fuel rods. And Boris asks, what's that mean? Um, <laughs> I think he's asking for all of us at this point. Uh, and like Ossoff kind of looks despondent and it says that, uh, the meltdown has begun. Yeah. Which I feel like as a society, we all kind of a vague feeling with a melt, what a meltdown is without really knowing what it actually is. So it's nice to see it's heavily described and depicted on the show as well as what the concerns are about it. Well, as someone who doesn't science well, I appreciate the title. Yeah. Because it really, that's, like, when I found out what it was, I was like, oh, shit, they, they, that was, okay, that's yeah. rare in the scientific community. They named that appropriately. You really do get all the information you need. It's a melting down. Okay, done. I got that. <laughs> we cut to a sink that is dripping water. Ludmilla is sleeping and wakes up to a man screaming and wailing. Oh, oh, she runs oh. in and sees it's Vasily. Vasily looks vastly different than the last time we saw him. Yeah, psh, yeah not me. Um, oh, my God, Spencer, this is a tough scene. And here, I think we can start to explain what's going on with Vasily. He has something called acute radiation syndrome, also colloquially known as radiation sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a little bit I want to talk about with um, radiation syndrome. Please do. If you're okay with that. Um, we, we see it firsthand in all of its horrifying glory over the course of this episode. We might as well know what these people are going through. And if you want to know if they, you know, Hollywooded up the sickness at all, uh-uh. Um, and you can and you can stomach it. You can Google death by radiation poisoning and look at the pictures. It's really really tough. If you if you have a you're not in you, you know you feel like that would affect you, don't do it. But I'm telling you that that can corroborate what the show is telling you. This thing does. Yeah. Um, it's basically tied to how much radiation someone's exposed to over time. Uh, this is commonly measured in rads, which you pointed out in an earlier episode. Uh, the show gives these radiation re- readings in rotogen. Mm-hmm. Um, generally one to two rads over a period of a few hours will result in sickness and has a one to 5% chance of killing you. So it's, it's and, and ultimately a very high risk of cancer in the out years. Um, as a point of reference, being exposed to more than 0.1 rad, just 0.1 rad is enough to give you symptoms of radiation poisoning. So sickness, vomiting, not feeling well. 
It's likely that Vasily was exposed to somewhere between 25 and 30 rads over a period of multiple hours, if not more. Um, this is enough to to kill you absolutely no later than no week, two weeks, but but usually before that. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's enough to kill you three times over. That's like three or four times the dose that will kill you no matter the amount of medical treatment. Point one will get you sick. Yeah. One to five, um, uh, one to two has a 5% chance of killing you. 25 to 30? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. it, it, so basically what happens is radioactive isotopes actually cause cell death. And in effect, your body starts melting from the inside. It starts with your bone marrow and it kind of goes out. The horrific, undescribably just heart-wrenching thing about this disease that there's, is there's a latency period is what they call it. And what that what that means is you intake all this radiation, you have your initial bout of sickness, you're vomiting, you have burns, and then you have a period that usually lasts between one and two days where you kind of look like you're okay. And then it starts to basically burn you from the inside through cell death. Um, Spencer, I got a fact for you. Please. Where, what event do you think caused the most recorded cases of death by acute radiation sickness? The most recorded cases, well, I'm probably wrong, but I'm going to assume something like, you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki, one of our actual uses of nuclear weapons on a large civilian target. I, I, so this, this list is, is non-military. Okay. I probably would have won that one if it was that. Yeah, that uh, been an easy question. Most acute cases. Causes of death. By cause of death. Uh, I, is it not Chernobyl? It is Chernobyl. And I, th- I find that interesting because we all strongly suspect, me at a 99.9% confidence, that the recorded cases of death by acute radiation syndrome uh, is much, much lower than it really was. So it's interesting to me that even the low number that they they, they gave us is still mm-hmm. the highest ever. Because they're listing, like, I think it was 30 or 31 cases of acute radiation death as a result of Chernobyl. Or I think a couple I, of those. I saw 28. Yeah, I think a few they, of those workers died from accident, well, died from the plant freaking blowing up or they're not sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know what the second is? Who? I don't. What is it? This one is heart-wrenching. So there was a radiotherapy accident in a hospital in Costa Rica. Oh, no. Yep. Where more doses, well, much, much higher levels of radioactivity were given to people who were being treated medically. And it was like 21. That was in 1996. How on earth can civilian commercial apparatus emit that much radiation to give somebody acute radiation poisoning? How would it even, why would it even have that setting? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. Um, But anyway, back to the recap after Mm -hmm. a little bit of um, research with Terry. Yeah, there's a little thing for me too. Yeah, uh, far away. You see over the course of this episode, these guys become the walking dead or... In terms of how they're visually depicted, I mean, they look like they are more dead than alive by the end of this, and that's in fitting and where a lot of our concepts of the modern zombie, in terms of the visuals, actually come from. Of where a lot of our accounts that were inspirational for our depictions of zombies today came from instances like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, of the walking wounded, the walking dead, um, trying to seek help after the incident of people so horrendously burned, so horrendously irradiated, in such abject pain that all they could do was just walk and shumble forward with their arms out as they're dying where they stand. So it is from these kind of radiation exposure instances that we get our concept of the modern walking dead. And we see it depicted in all of its horror here. And I'm glad that you continue to bring up Hiroshima because, um, (laughs) I think it's easy for a casual watcher 
casual sort of uh, somebody who casually takes in history to look at this and go, oh, man, the Soviets really fucked up. But it's like when you think about Hiroshima, <laughs> you're like, I don't know, man. And like actually seeing this up close, I know this makes me like a sort of snowflake, but seeing like the really yeah. intense like, OK, this is what happens to the body. All of a sudden now I'm like pulling out my Truman biography. I'm like, I don't know. I need to reassess this decision. I'm not sure this was right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a very interesting thing to try to, to, to argue and justify about. I, I'm i still of the belief that it is justifiable or at least excusable, but everyone needs to understand what the human cost of that is to make that kind of decision. I don't think Truman fully did at the time. I think over the course of his life, he came more to terms with it. Still agreed with his decision, but came to understand truly what the risks of MAD were. Yeah, it's tough. Anyway, uh, Vasily's just going crazy. Back to the recap here. Because um, everything hurts. I mean, he's just burning from the inside out. Um, and Ludmilla's pushed out of the room. We cut to Gorbachev, who is poring over newspapers and magazines uh, that are reporting on the disaster. He gets a phone call. Oh, by the way, when that is going on, you hear the ominous music. I'm going to point the ominous music out a lot in this episode. Please do. That, it really impressed me. Um, Comrade Sherbina, which is who we're calling Boris in the recap, mm-hmm. he calls Gorbachev. He reports that they've drained the tanks and the risk of an additional explosion has been remediated. Gorbachev asks what else and Boris, because he can tell there's something else. Boris explains that the core is melting and that the concrete pad that was placed under the core, and so just backing up to... Uh, the first episode when we sort of explained a nuclear reactor. So they they know when they create a nuclear reactor, they get a core going, generating energy, that there's a potential for a meltdown. Meltdown literally means melt into the ground. So they put this big concrete pad under it to protect the earth from such an event. Mm-hmm. So this is now playing out because they poured uh, sand and boron over top of this thing, pushing the energy down. And it's going through the, obviously going through the facility, but going into the ground. It's going to hit this concrete pad. Um, apparently, by Legasov's estimates, the concrete pad will hold up for six to eight weeks. But after that, Legasov is saying that there's a 50% chance that it will melt into the groundwater. He explains, that, and of course, Gorbachev, he asks the right questions. Gorbachev's mm-hmm. a bright guy. Uh, he says, well, what, what groundwater? Where does it go? He says, well, this is, it flows into the Pripyat River, which flows into the to the Dnieper River, which is the primary water supply to 50 million people. And Boris <laughs> Boris, Boris provides context for this because he says it's not just that. Plus, you have the issue of crops, livestock, wildlife. I mean, this is a, a all-hands-on-deck disaster if this occurs. Um, of course, as Boron, Boris does is apt to do, he, he gives the scenario, but he also has a recommendation. He doesn't go to Gorbachev without a recommendation. Um, and Which is always, reco- good, always good advice for dealing with the superior. If you're presenting a problem, give them a way of solving it at the same time. Really makes you look a lot better. Nothing like nothing to piss off your boss more than saying, hey, this thing is screwed up. What do you want to do about it? No idea. I don't know. That's Thanks. your job. <laughs> they recommend installing a heat exchanger under the pad to lower the core temperature, um, or at least the temperature of the lava that is now going down into um, this, this concrete disk. And will, of course, slow and eventually stop the meltdown. To do that, and he kind of takes a breath, he needs all the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union. (laughs) Oh, this is, again, how we are such different countries. Can you imagine the president trying to issue a requisition for all the liquid nitrogen in the United States? How long that would take? 
I don't even think if people responded. Could we even do it? I don't, I don't think, think so. I think that there would be a mom and pop liquid nitrogen company in Fort Worth that would say, well, I don't care about the Eastern Seaboard. Yeah, definitely Fort Worth. Fuck Fort Worth. That would be the place where it would go. <laughs> that doesn't bother me. <laughs> Gorbachev just dismisses this. He says, you can have whatever you need. You should know that by now. Like, don't even ask me for this shit. Just go do it. Uh, and Legasov brings up the exclusion zone and gets shut down. He was a little out of his lane here. Um, and Gorbachev tells him you are there for one reason and one reason only to make this stop. Whoo, a little bit of a f- firing back here from uh, Legasov. He says, if you mean when Chernobyl will be completely safe, well, the half-life of plutonium 239 is 24,000 years. So perhaps we just say not within our lifetimes. That might be my line of the episode. It's entirely, it's a dumb thing for him to say, but God is a powerful line. And it just leads to Gorbachev just hanging up. <laughs> Gorbachev does hang up on him. And Boris says they should take a walk. And then he basically demands they take a walk. Mm-hmm. All right. So this part right here is going to be a little tough for folks. Because uh, uh, I'm going to go through some of the quotes here where they're talking about this acute radiation poisoning. So hang tight. Um, we'll try to go quick. Um, they're talking uh, and walking outside. And this dog is following him, which is very cute. Um, this is sadly for the next episode, all of the abandoned dogs that are in Priapet. <laughs> Spencer, you don't have to act with me. I know you don't fucking like dogs. I'm I'm feeling your pain, sir. I'm allowed to. It's called empathy. <laughs> Spencer, yo, shout out everybody. Spencer hates dogs. He really does. <laughs> Spencer texted me that he was counting the number of dogs in the next episode. I'm just pointing that out. Um, okay, there's some there's some invented little stories here. Let's just lay that out. <laughs> Boris wants to know what is going to happen to our boys. And he's like our boys, and he goes, yeah, the firemen, the, the people who were the most severely impacted. Legasov, as he is wont to do, just pulls the Band-Aid off. He doesn't doesn't hold back, and he says this. The levels that some of them were exposed to, ionized radiation tears the cellular structure apart. The skin blisters, turns red, then black. This is followed by a latency period. The effect, the immediate effect subsides. Patients appear to be recovering, healthy even, but they aren't. This usually only lasts a day or two. Continue. Then the cellular damage begins to manifest. The bone marrow dies, the immune system fails, the organs and soft tissue begin to decompose. The arteries and veins spill open like sieves to the point where you can't even administer morphine for the pain, which is unimaginable. And then three days to three weeks, you're dead. That is what will happen to our boys. That, there's another line in episode nominee right there, just how horrifying that description is, just to put it down to brass tacks. It's tough, man. I'm, I'm hand up. I, when I was watching this episode, I was absolutely tearing up just because I was thinking like these, like, I don't know. A lot of times you're watching either something that's real or something that's based on something real or might even just be in fiction altogether. And you get sad because you're like, this person is dying, but usually you can rationalize it in your mind. You can say, oh, well, you know, they decided to do X, Y, Z that led to this. Mm-hmm. These, these people had zero conception. Like the firemen, they just like, they just went to a fire. Yeah. That's it. The only three of all the three they're worried about right now, the divers who luckily enough did, did not die in this particular manner. They're the only ones that had the slightest freaking clue about what was happening to them right then, or at least had a choice in the matter of where they were going to be. <sighs> I mean, yeah. you got there, there were security guards that were at <laughs> reactor yeah. core four who were just on duty. Yeah. And, and, and three weeks later, they're dealing with this. 
and all the additional plant personnel that were then brought into the plant as part of the shift change with no prior warning to what they were just walking into. Ugh. Boris wants to know about them. I tend to think this was like 80% of what Boris really wanted to know here. Because Legasov dropped this on him in the last episode. Hey, we're dead too. Yeah. Uh, Legasov says they haven't had enough. They've had a constant stream of it, but they haven't had enough to destroy the cells. So they're not going to deal with that sort of like bone marrow melting thing. But it will destroy their DNA, which means cancer or a plastic anema. Uh, either way, death. Boris comments that they've gotten off easy then. Interesting here that Boris, in this conversation, does not chastise Legasov for going at Gorbachev yet again. And we're going to see this again and again at, during the recap. Boris is just beginning on Legasov's side. I mean, the fact that he went at Gorbachev and he didn't even say you shouldn't have done that. Like, he is he has really changed from the Boris we saw initially. Yeah, even when I was watching the scene the first time, I thought their purpose of going on the walk was that he could castigate him where he didn't assume there was recording devices. But he doesn't at all. He has just an odd, he has a curious conversation with him about what the personal nature of this disaster is. Boris, uh, then they see some folks um, on a rooftop, it looks like, who are watching them. And and Legasov says, I've seen them before. And Boris says, that's why he wanted to take a walk. Assume everything is bugged. Your room, even your bathroom. Boris explains they've been there the whole time, but now the fact that they're out in the open means they want Boris and Legasov to know that they're there, that they're being followed and they're being watched. And did you recognize who these two were? Yes, these were the the two that were at the bar uh, when when Legasov went up, right? Yep, the husband and wife that quizzed him on, so is there anything we have to be worried about? His first test, even if he didn't know it. Cut to a hotel near Chernobyl, that same hotel, actually, that 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 scene occurred in. And Legasov is walking in. He walks up to Yulana Komyuk, and she says the core is melting fast. He says he knows, but he has a plan. And she seems to know what that plan is. It, you know, it's easy to get like sort of checked out on that character. Again, the character is a composite of all the scientists who worked on this. So every time she has an idea, it's somebody different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, it, they kind of had to do it anyway. Um, all-knowing character. <laughs> he, he asked her, why did it explode? And she says, I can't, basically, I can't make the calculations work. Like every scenario that I'm playing out here, it, I can't figure out how it could explode. And like I says, you're not going to get the answer here. You're not going to do it on paper. Very wise move here. He says, you need to go talk to the people who are in the control room, Dyatlov, Akimov, Tuptanov. They are in hospital number six in Moscow. Sidebar. Spencer, how much does it suck to work in hospital six right now? <sighs> I, God, aren't you just like, fuck, if I could have just been in Hospital 5? <laughs> you know, I've heard good things about Hospital 5. You know, they, they get ice cream in their break room. It sounds like a lovely place. They're not actively, constantly exposed to walking radioactive people. <laughs> he says she should go now and talk to them while they're still alive. Very smart. He knows the timeline for acute radiation sickness. He says, go figure out how it happened so that we can prevent it from happening again. Mm-hmm. Shout out Legasov. But he tells her to be careful. Uh, which she kind of doesn't. <laughs> yeah, as brilliant as this character is, they also write her up as being almost willfully blind to good sense. I think they're playing on like this sort of trope of scientist. Yeah. Who are usually pretty socially inadept or non-adept or however you phrase that like they usually don't know what the fuck's going on socially or organizationally they're just really good at focusing on an individual problem and dealing with that yeah she's she's quite the insufferable genius cut to tula russia soviet union may 3rd 
Um, and we see a group of miners sitting around. Lord Commander Mormont is there. Shout out, Lord Commander. <laughs> yeah. Jiora Mormont. Mm-hmm. And we get a Soviet joke, Spencer. Our first Soviet joke and only Soviet joke of the series. Love this Soviet joke. You ready for it? Please do. What's as big as a house, burns 20 liters of fuel every hour, puts a shitload of smoke and noise into the air, and cuts an apple into three pieces. A Soviet machine meant to cut an apple into four pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. I do. I, I like it. Uh, Soviet jokes are funny. I heard them growing up. Um, but I will tell you this. I think that it's telling here that these guys are willing to tell Soviet jokes in an open setting. Because in the lead up to the fall of the Soviet Union, those Soviet jokes were really an embarrassment to the Soviet Union. They yeah. hated these jokes that really came at and exactly what this one does, which basically says their technology sucks, they're inefficient, and they're incompetent. Yeah, this this is part of the beginnings of the area of Glasnost and Perestroika that people are, you know, legally allowed to kind of make these jokes or commentary before. But I also love the point they made at the end of this episode, too, is that these guys make energy. They had a certain degree of power over people that the average person lacked. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they're all, I mean, they're just in soot. And, I mean, they're miners. They just got off a shift. Yeah. And this caravan shows up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Love this scene, Spencer. Mm -hmm. Oh my god! So this guy in a blue suit gets out. He asks the miners who's in charge, and one side, one guy says he's the crew chief. His name is Andre Glukov, uh, and he says he needs a hundred men to get on the trucks now. Glukov says, "Do you? To where?" He says, "That's classified." He goes, "Go ahead and start shooting them. You haven't got enough bullets for all of us. Kill as many as you can. Whoever's left, they'll beat the living piss out of each of you." <laughs> <laughs> Great line. It's not going to be line of the episode, but it might be the strongest line. Oh, yeah. It, it, these guys are just utterly unafraid of people armed with AK-47s willing to shoot them, even threatening them here. I love it when the, one of the soldiers says, you can't talk to us. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, that's my next thing. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. And the soldier just shuts up. Like, it, the level of confidence of these guys. But very aggressive. Very oh, aggressive yeah. people. Very. This is their um, mine. It's their mine. Um, he says they won't leave unless they know why. Now... You know, his way of getting to this point might be aggressive, but it's a very, very reasonable point. It's valid. Like, tell me, at least tell me where I'm going. Mm -hmm. um, the guy says they're going to Chernobyl. He says, do you know what happened there? And it, the word has gotten out because <laughs> uh, Glukov says, um, we, wait a second, we don't dig up bodies. Yeah, we, we, we dig up coal, not bodies. That That is a haunting line right there about what news they're getting. It's this, uh, this fella explains that the reactor core is melting and it's going to poison the water from Kiev to the Black Sea. I love how this everything gets lost in translation here. Because there is a maybe 50% chance this guy says it to these guys as if this is going to happen. And it ends up being kind of tragic because as we figure out... Uh, well, we figured it out later, but if you just look at history, the the concrete uh, disc that was under the reactor core in Chernobyl mm -hmm. never actually melted all the way through. Yeah. So what they're asking these guys to do um, is, is a smart play. It's the insurance play. But ultimately, if they'd never done it, the, the, the water wouldn't have been poisoned. It didn't yeah. get through that disc. It's one of those things where you're in a position of leadership. If anyone comes to you and says, there is a 50% of 50 million people no longer being able to live in an area that stretches over several thousand miles, 
whatever you can do to avoid that 50% chance you do, and you just consider it, as you said, a valid insurance for that outcome. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with telling them as if it's fact. I just think it's it's something yeah. to note because it, it adds these, to the guys, these guys are doing it because they think this is certain if they don't do it. Yeah. Um, so the miners are like, okay, great. Or not the miners. Look off. He says, well, how do I stop that from happening? Uh, and the guy says, yeah, I haven't been told because I don't need to know. Uh, but if you heard all you need to know, you know, mm-hmm. basically like, come on, dude. Like, what more do you need to hear? Um, and Glukov starts walking forward. Says, "I'll go with you." And I love this moment. All the coal <laughs> coal miners with their their coal stained hands just start smacking his pristine blue suit as they go through, just one after another. And then one guy belts out, "Now you look like the minister of coal." <laughs> <laughs> These are some hard fuckers, Spencer. These are some hard fuckers, and it's you know it's one of those things where it, if it actually. It was useful that we had them on site. Even though it didn't prove necessary, they did their work to an incredible degree. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of flying through the recap here. I mean, anything you want to bring up? I mean, so far? Well, just a little bit of a a historical difference of where I can see consciously why they changed this. But the actual minister of coal at that period was a former miner, and he's built like a freaking tank. So it seems like a very conscious decision of whether they wanted to draw a point of contrast between the distant politicians and these guys, which would probably be true in almost any industry but this one right now. So, yeah, but, but it actually is an inco- a little bit of an inconsistency with the story they're trying to tell about the Soviet Union. Because think of the guy who worked in the shoe factory. They've yeah. already established that the people who rise in the party to these leadership positions typically are former workers. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it makes for a funny scene, and it does accentuate... The sort of gruffness and the sort of like uh, don't play by the rules type of attitude of these coal miners, but it, I don't think it's. If I'm, if I'm also reading this correctly, he actually went to Chernobyl to help coordinate the operations of the mine workers because he felt obliged to you know his people. See, um, I, that to me would have been a better story. I would have liked to see that more. As I said, they did it for the visual, and they don't, they don't want to add any more characters than they have to, given the thousands they already have on this show. And they got to fuck up a crisp suit. <laughs> Oh, come on, that's not an attractive suit. That needed a bit of coal. I think it added to the look of it. Dude, really. in 86, that thing was popping. In 80, it's, Eggshell it's, oh, white Cadillac. That is a soup. necessary part of the 80s that we have abandoned and left behind. We've learned something over the last 30 years, and it was avoidance of that particular style. Gator boots, look out. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Moscow. Uh, and Ludmilla is next to Vasily. She kisses his hand. He says, don't touch me. Again, in my notes, God damn this lady. God damn her. That's all Mm -hmm. in caps. Um, He's in rough shape. Terrible burns all over. Hair is falling out. He asked her to open the curtains. This is a, I mean, this is one of those where, you know, you probably, uh, you hope to be like this right before you die. Yeah. Have that Um, moment of lucidity. Yeah, and 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 that to allow your personality to shine one last time. I whenever I kick off, I hope I can do this. He says, "Open the curtains. The light's too much for him." So she puts sunglasses on. She starts laughing at the sunglasses on him, and he laughs too. He says, "Tell me everything you see. Tell me outside." She starts naming things, and at the end, he says, "I told you. I told you I'd show you Moscow, didn't I?" Mm. I know. Mm. Yeah. And, and he's saying this and. God, if these are actual quotes or actual account of this guy, credit to his bravery. He's trying to even keep a brave face while this is happening to him. Because his chest looks like it's an open, pus-filled wound right now. Doesn't look like, Spencer. It is. Doesn't look like. It is. Now, he does look like he's in a state where they're still able to get him some level of morphine. 
Um, but you know, as Legasoft says, at a certain point, your veins start to split and they can't even do that. And that is, I mean, we've talked about this, Spencer bullet bullet to the head. If you're ever at a point of where you lack the still functioning circulatory system to accept painkillers, you're already dead. You just don't have the good sense to recognize it yet. Yeah, no, I, yeah, bullet. Um, back to a hospital hallway and Yulana has made her way to hospital six in Moscow. She walks into a room. And there she sees Dyatlov. Now I can tell you this: the f- the first time I watched this, I did not. I didn't watch it with the subtitles on. I didn't know that you and I were going to do this podcast. We were still back in Game of Thrones territory back then. I was still trying to tell you season eight was good. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know this was Dyatlov. He looks very much worse the wearer, don't he? He really does. I mean, when you rewatch it and you know he's Dyatlov, you can see it. But man, they really do a great job with the hair and makeup to show that this guy is struggling. He is not struggling in the way Vasily is struggling or some of the other guys that we see. It but also he's struggling ha- nonetheless. It also also has done nothing to improve his mindset in life. Um, he looks at her and he says, this food is shit. He wants something else. <laughs> um, I have a theory on this. I'll tell you at the end. <clears throat> she explains she's not a nurse. She's a nuclear physicist. Quote from him. Well, then, comrade nuclear physicist, unless you happen to have a butter and caviar sandwich on you, you can get the fuck out of my room. <laughs> Your theory, sir. I posit that Dyatlov, and we've talked about this before, he survived a a potentially lethal dose of radiation previously. He, during the actual incident, was telling folks, oh, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. I think he is trying to project an air of being more okay than he is. And I think he has zero appetite and people are pushing him to eat. And he's using the excuse that the food is shit and asking for something as ridiculous as a butter and caviar sandwich to get around the fact that he's actually really, really sick. It's, it's also probably the case, too, that, you know, even chemo can wreck your taste buds, can wreck your ability to taste and sense things. Radiation poisoning? He may not have any active taste buds left on his tongue. I'll tell you this, though. I want a butter and caviar sandwich. You know, I've never thought about that as a potential food option before, but... Doesn't that sound kind of good? It does. Man, it sounds real good. Like, I mean, like with toasted, creamy toasted bread getting into the butter. Yeah, you know, we can do this right. Yeah, all right, we may have to do that. Um, cut to buses <laughs> of the miners going into Pripyat. Ominous music is playing. Again, they are going into danger. They're going into the radioactivity, uh, the uh, nu- the isotopes, uh, as you, you corrected me uh, last episode. It's actually... Uh, um, small point here it's actually not radiation stuff it's it's something else <laughs> you know um, again th- this is like calling it the place where the panthers play i think radiation stuff really gets the point across better <laughs> just letting you know uh, y- you know that they're going into danger uh, they unload boris and legasov are waiting for glukov uh glukov there glukov um legasov he says he's bad at lying uh and boris basically just says well you best not lie to the fucking miners these men work in the dark they see everything Apparently, some idiot gave Gluckoff a face mask when he got off this damn bus. And he's not wearing it. He throws it on the desk when he walks in. He says, what's the job? Legasov says, you need to install a liquid nitrogen heat exchanger under the concrete, um, uh, under the reactor core for He says, you can only get it at it from underground. And Legasov explains that the core above is melting down. Great moment here, because Gluckoff goes melting down, and he pick, picks his hand up, and he goes, Pushes it down. And he goes melting down. <laughs> Essentially, much the same way. In much the same way, we were just describing that yeah. phrase, melting down. And then, like I said, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's melting down. <laughs> um, he says, "Won't it? Won't this? You know, 
concrete disc fall on us. He says, not if you can get get it, get your work done in six weeks. Klokov asks for dimensions. He says, dig a tunnel, 150 meters. At the end of that, clear a space that's 30 by 30 meters for the heat exchanger. You can't use heavy machinery. He says, okay, well, Klokov says, well, I need more men, 400 at least. At this point, the number of men, the number of resources is just, you. I mean, it's just. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you're racking that credit card up. Mm-hmm. He says, how deep? Six meters? Uh, he uses six meters because he knows that that's, if you're the fastest way to build a, tu- a tunnel that size is about six meters. Like he, he, he knows the dimensions. He knows the stuff well enough. He's just like, oh yeah, well, six meters, right? And Lixos says 12 for your protection. He says, you'd be shielded from much of the radiation. <laughs> Love this fucking moment, Spencer. Love it. Lockoff says, um, the interest to, t- to the tunnel isn't 12 meters below ground, is it? No. We aren't 12 meters below now, are we? No, we're not. <laughs> Uh, Boris cuts him off because Legosov has no answer. He says, well, we have the equipment. It's coming. And Glukov says, nope, we're starting now. I don't want my men here one minute longer than they have to be. He picks up the face mask, throws it at Legosov and says, if these worked, you'd be wearing them. <laughs> and walks out. Legosov looks at Boris. Are they all like that? Boris, they all like that. <laughs> uh, we've gotten a wonderful introduction to this character. This is such a great character they have for this role. He's incredible, isn't he? Like, I mean, the casting is so strong. I don't know what the real coal miner who was the foreman of these folks um, Mm. really looked like. But, I mean, I I totally accept this guy. And I get his personality right away. I mean, Mm -hmm. the way he acts it, I'm like, okay, I I think I know this guy. You just don't lie to him ever under any circumstance. Uh, May 6, 1986, nine days after the explosion, we see a shot of the core. And then we see the miners. They, true to their word, uh, Glukov's word, they have started digging. Um, Gluckoff calls someone underground and the guy says it's 50 degrees. Now here in America, we're thinking 50 degrees, not so bad. Maybe a sweater. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Celsius, my friends. That's 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. That is halfway to boiling. And he says, shit. And he's like really upset at how hot it is. He calls to a guard. He says they need fans. Pikalov in the only moment I've seen anybody in this, you're going to see anybody in this series actually shut down Gluckoff. Just basically tells him. That's a hard no on the fans. Um, and, and for what reason? Well, you're gonna you're gonna kick up dust and you breathe you're gonna breathe it in. To which his response is, "I'm a coal miner. I've been filling my lungs with dust for twenty years." Pikalov, not this dust. And he's right. Yeah, he's absolutely right. We need you to be alive long enough to dig this. Well, and you know, a lot of these coal miners actually lived. I mean, a lot died, but but a lot lived. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure the fans would have really disrupted that. Um, Back at the Moscow hospital, Yulana walks into a room and on a bed. And this is the start of some of the roughest scenes we see. God. Um, Behind plastic. You may not recognize him right away, but he is, in fact, Leonid Toptunov. Leonid Toptunov is the senior engineer who was on duty the night of the Chernobyl explosion. He is the guy that Akimov, who was the actual shift manager, was trying to talk through the disaster as it was going on saying we didn't do anything wrong etc etc this be the young guy with the with the blonde mustache right that's him and to, uh, lena Tiptunov and akimov are the two that with the just sliver of hope that the core was still intact actually went down and opened the tanks to try to flood water into the core to cool it down to stabilize everything when there was no core they were just doing this i mean 
it was it was there was heroicism in it but it was completely ineffective because there was no core and they stay down there for hours and hours and hours and we saw them again um in the hospital mm-hmm. in pripyat uh really not looking great uh leonard looks way worse now he's on a bed he's basically boiling um and uh he's got red sores all over his body hair loss and she says she needs him to tell her everything that happened I love him. I love this guy. He says, yes, I will tell. <laughs> he seems like he wants to tell. Yeah. His breathing is labored. He explains that he's Leonid Tiptunov, and he's the senior reactor control chief at Chernobyl. She looks up. She's got a, a face mask on, so you can't see much, but her eyes are doing she some She looks surprised. Here. She's a senior engineer. How old are you? He says, I'm 25. She takes her glasses off, cocks her head. In what I took as sympathy, and then she takes a little bit of a risk here for herself. She reaches in, and in a human moment, because she just feels for this kid, starts wiping some blood from his face. As he's just sitting there talking to her, he just starts actively hemorrhaging as blood just starts pouring down his face. Yep. Yeah, she's very much directly confronting the human element of this tragedy, and this is the first of a few she's going to have before the day is over. Yeah. Yeah, the the, the tough tune-off scenes are tough because um, he is a kid. I mean, I mean, of course, you're 25. People are gonna say you're an adult, but you, I mean, you're a bit of a kid. Yeah. Um, and he never should have been the senior engineer. Obviously, <laughs> that, that is pretty, uh, pretty, pretty apparent. And he is in about the most pain you can be in on this earth. Cuts of Vasily's being wheeled, and Ludmilla is still fucking with him. This uh-huh. fucking lady, um, and the nurse then sees her and says, have you been here the whole time? She says, yes. And her reasoning is because you weren't here taking care of him. He's soiling himself. He's bleeding. He's da, 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 da. Nobody's, nobody's taking care of him. Why aren't you taking care of him? And she says, I've been in two other wings of the hospital where there are dozens of patients exactly like him. Interesting when you think of <laughs> the Soviet count of the number of people who died of acute radiation poisoning. <laughs> yeah, she literally says dozens. It's just like, yeah. uh-huh. And then there, there is a haunting line that happens here. Of where she says, yeah. it isn't safe for you here. And Ludmilla responds, he's my husband. To which I, I have written, written in the script is Vet, uh, Vetrova says, not anymore. He's something else now. Do you understand? He's dangerous to you. <sighs> she tells her to go home and Ludmilla says she doesn't want to die. She doesn't want him to die alone. This fucking nurse deserves like some, some shade here. Because she, you already know that you told Ludmilla... Go in there for 30 minutes and that's it. And she stayed basically the whole fucking day or two days or whatever it was. How this nurse would ever allow her to go in unaccompanied in the room with Vasily is is unreasonable. I mean, she absolutely should have a security guard escort her out. But she doesn't. She says, go in there. Stay um, behind behind the the plastic. plastic. Yeah. This fucking nurse. Spencer. Mm -hmm. Does Ludmilla stay behind the plastic? No, matter of fact, she doesn't even really hesitate. She just goes right by, right through the plastic and just starts holding his hand of this corpse of a person that was once her husband. Yeah, and so at this point, what we're, the, the, what we're seeing from Vasily is the last few hours of somebody dying this way. And he's, 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 he's rotting. Uh, he looks worse than any other character we see at any point in the series. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got, he, you know, as Legosov explained, his, his red burns have now turned black. Um, and she walks in, she walks to the other side of the plastic. We hear the ominous music playing. She touches his hand and she says, we're going to have a baby. And 
I want to believe, and I think we're supposed to be led to believe, that there's still enough of him there that he recognizes it, and even has something resembling a smile through what resembles a, a silent screech of horror. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he kind of t- squeezes his first finger and, and thumb together a little bit. Cut back to Chernobyl. Um, actually, let me let me go back to that. Spencer. When you watched this, did you think Ludmilla was a dead woman? Yeah, 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 me, yeah very, very much so. And you know, as we later find out in the series, and it's true historically, she got pretty close. She still has health effects. But yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, but, we'll 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 do the reveal on what happened to Ludmilla. But she did survive. What, what, let's just say it now. By the way, the makeup on this show is terrifyingly good. That yeah. does, no longer looks like a human that's that's laying there. No, and it, I mean, it's true to form. I mean, you, when you deliver a line like, no, he's not your husband anymore. He's something different now. He's dangerous. You can't then have right. makeup that suggests anything else. And when you look at this guy, I mean, I would look at him and think, he's not alive anymore, obviously. like Yeah, we just fished this out of a river somewhere. Let's see if, let's bring it, let's bring it to the corner for examination. Yeah. <sighs> Lady, Lady Stoneheart looks better than this guy. Oh, God. Yeah, 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 she does. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> we cut back to Chernobyl and Ligasov is sitting there deep in thought and Boris walks in, he announces the fire is out and the minerals uh, or the, the miners are making progress. They're ahead of schedule actually should be done in four weeks. Now I'll tell you this, if I could have laid money down on any single plot point in this show, it would have been that the miners finished ahead of schedule. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No question at all. Didn't necessarily guess the work ethic we're about to see they're using in the next scene. <laughs> Boris clearly wants to celebrate a little here, and I don't blame him. I mean, you know, they're they're they know they've basically killed themselves, but they've gotten past the worst of it. Really, I mean, they've gotten to a point where like the, the continent's not going to come to an immediate end. Yeah. Um. So having a drink or two, I'm with Boris on that. Uh, Legasoft doesn't seem into it. No, Legasoft is the Eeyore of people. Yeah, he's like, it's like well, I'm trying to get you to celebrate. And you're like, I don't know. I've got a, I got a deposition I have to prepare for. I fly to freaking North Carolina to celebrate with you. Give me some credit. I got better than Legasov levels of dedication. You fly to North Carolina to watch me celebrate and work later. <laughs> that's, my, that's how I celebrate. <laughs> Door knocks and some guy uh, is standing there and he says there's trouble with the miners. Cut to the miners. They're nude. Take Completely. Just utterly unabashed. There's not a yep. single element of shame about them. Nope. Glukov explains that they're hot. And they can't use fans. Uh, so they're going to do it the old way, like their fathers did. That's how they used to mine. Um, and he says, we're still wearing the fucking hats. What do you want? <laughs> that might be line of the episode. <laughs> that might be good. line of the episode. <laughs> That's pretty damn good. Well, Agasov says you aren't as protected. Um, and Glukov cutting through the bullshit uh, on brand. You telling me it would make a difference? He says, and Legasov just, no. He just basically yeah. says, no. Um, he says, when this is over, will they be looked after? Yet again, Boris breaking protocol gives him an honest answer and says, I don't know. Yeah. Boris is really going rogue here because I, I don't think that the party would like to hear him telling these Mm-mm. guys before the Mm-mm. job is done, we're not going to take care of you. The Glukov knows, that, clearly suspected that was the answer and seems to both just hate the system that allows that answer to be the answer, but also appreciate the honesty of this man before him that he told him. Yep. And he does all he can do and he goes back to work. Yeah. And I almost wonder whether this actor practiced that walk because that man is the perfect, I don't give a fuck about this naked walk as he's just walking up to these two guys. Yeah, he really does. (laughs) (laughs) 
What does that look like? That's like a like a boxer walking in the ring. Maybe? Oh yeah, he he's squared. He's strutting. It it's an impress it's impressive acting achievement to see that guy walk up to our main characters. Mm, pause with the word impressive. Um, Yulana is with Leonid, and he is telling her what happened. Uh, he says he told her the power. He, he he told he tells her the power jumped from two hundred to four hundred megawatts. So, do you have any conception of what four hundred megawatts is in this context? I really don't. Uh, the energy, the total energy generated by the plant at that time in terms of electricity was one thousand megawatts. Uh, so that's a pretty massive jump in terms of power. Very to have that go instantaneously. Uh, he says, yes, um, it did, this did happen. It was very fast. She says, why didn't you initiate an emergency shutdown? Why didn't you press the AZ-5 button? He says, they did. Um, he says, Akamov pressed the button. He reported the increase and Akamov pressed the button. She says, that's not possible. And he says, I swear, that's how it happened. And that's when it exploded. And this rattles Yelana. She doesn't have any follow-up questions. She gets up to leave the room. And he starts crying as she leaves. Now, I, I took this to mean that he is crying because he is thinking about what occurred. Not necessarily the pain. I mean, he's clearly in pain, but I think that at this point, recounting what occurred that night is as much as he has the mental capacity to be affected mm-hmm. by it. I think it is. And also, not that it is at all his fault. And I think this no. makes pretty clear that it isn't. But we've seen before the amount of guilt that this man feels that he was even part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So she goes where you would expect her to go. She goes to see Akamov. We don't see Akamov, thank God. <laughs> Apparently we are very lucky that we don't, because her description of him later would have been a horrifying visual that I never need to see. Yeah, apparently Akamov was in the worst shape of anybody, probably even including Vasily when we see him. We don't see him. But he is corroborating the story. He says he pressed it. He's baffled as to why it would explode after the, he pressed the button. He doesn't understand. She thanks him, and as she walks out the door... He says, I did everything right. I did everything right. It's yeah. like, he's, it's a mantra. He's desperately a, t- trying to tell himself in the last moments before he dies, I I shouldn't feel like I did this. Yeah, it's a madness mantra. As you said, he's trying to seek absolution here in his last moments. He, and there's no one else to give it to him but himself. Um, based, uh, on her, based on her description later, are we to believe that this man essentially has no face and is just a rotting skull there before her? Yes. Yes, she says his face had his face had melted off. I don't want to see that outside of bad Marvel comic books. I I yeah I I don't I don't want to see a person like that. I'm glad they didn't show it to me. No, and I think that that would have at that point been grotesque. Only because we we get it. They've shown us enough for us to get it. You don't need to go the the route of the guy with no face. In some ways, it's more haunting that they don't depict him, and all we have is her consciously not trying to look at him. It all make, it just fills in the imagine, imagination for us. So did you see when when you see like because what you, what you see when you're watching this is he's got the the he's clearly on a gurney, and they've got the plastic around him, but yeah. they lower it enough that you can see kind of some of the bed and some of the lower parts of the plastic. Yeah. Did you notice it was black? Yeah, I did. He's, he's rotting into the god damn radiation poisoning. Damn it to hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Yolanda walks out. She's walking down the hall. She looks in one of the rooms and she sees fucking Ludmilla behind the plastic. On the, This lady is not, not just behind the plastic. She's behind the plastic. She's on the bed. She's got this fucking guy's hand touching her stomach. Yeah. 
it's it's she is essentially not only holding a, a radioactive graphite rod, she's directing it to the most sensitive area. All right, I just want to do a PSA for all of my fans. Please do. And Please all of my loved heard. ones. If I experience acute radiation poisoning, Spencer's going to shoot me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to shoot me very early. He's going to let me get to the latency period, but then it's out. Mm-hmm. We have an agreement on this. If for some reason Spencer's unable to do that, I would like you to shoot me. If for some reason you're not willing to do that, do not fucking touch me. <laughs> Obey hospital safety protocols. Jesus They're there Christ. for your protection. Come on, Ludmilla, touching the stomach. I was, so, I was like, I was like a sports fan watching this. Like, no, no. Um, oh God, it's tough. But anyway, Yulana has the same reaction I do. She storms in, yanks her out, throw, basically throws her up against the wall. She starts berating the nurse who let her in there. She said she was behind the plastic. She's touching him and she's pregnant. She figured out pregnant, touching the stomach, I guess. Mm. She said, what kind of facility is this? And basically, I want to speak to your manager situation. She says, people are going to hear about this. People are going to hear. Do you understand? Everyone is going to hear. Not a good thing to say with the KGB still out there. What is everyone going to hear? Guy steps out. A little members only jacket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> May have a cigarette. Um, what are they going to hear? She says, uh, he says, no, tell me. What are they going to hear? She tries to to give the, well, Lugosov sent me that. Pfft, who gives a shit? If Lugosov said that, I'd put him in jail. Yeah, I'm part, you can check this. My name is, we know who you are. Mm-hmm. What is everyone going to hear? And mm-hmm. then it just cuts. It does. It cuts to, anything you want to talk about with that scene with Yulana? Um, I mean, do you think that this overreaction from her is realistic, considering the country she lives in? I, I think we're being led to believe throughout all the interactions of her character that she has lived an intentionally isolated life. That she has been sheltered by academia and been allowed to survive and persist in that. And the moment she is forced out of her comfort sphere, she is under active threat of being stepped on. We saw it when she was interacting with the party official, and we're seeing it now. Yep. We cut to Moscow, May 7th, 1986. Legasov and Boris are back at the Kremlin. Boris explains that Yulana was arrested. Um, and, and Legasov is really upset about this. Um, and he's like, it was it? And Boris is like, yeah. So they know it was a KGB. Boris mm-hmm. says, look, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Boris and Legasov walk into a room. Boris is giving an update to everybody. This includes Gorbachev. Says the fire is out, but the miners are working. It's a little good cop, bad cop situation. And there's no longer a chance of an additional thermal explosion. Basically, he declares a bit of a victory here. The the, the catastrophic stuff we've brought to you, probably not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Some guy is, they, they focus on watching Legasov the whole time, very intently. Um, then Boris says they've been trying to protect the information about the situation. Other than the unfortunate initial release of information, they believe that they have no other leaks. Legasov stands up to talk about the work that remains. And he, he admits it's a good cop, bad cop. He's like, hey, if you did good news, now i got to tell you. And his quote is, now I'm afraid a long war must begin. Which is a great line, too. Really good. Legasov explains in an area of 2,600 square kilometers. There's that number must be completely evacuated all animals surviving within the zone either wild or domesticated must be destroyed spencer's happy about this with the dogs in the immediate area around chernobyl <laughs> there's cats too i like cats we won't do that cats ain't dying you kidding me those cats are fucking in the they're out in the woods i mean they might die but not from a gunshot mm. uh, area around chernobyl will need to be destroyed and basically buried up under itself uh, the top level of dirt the the leaves the trees all of that and the reason for that is that you could have a strong gust of wind a storm 
um, something that could move all this material with all this radioactivity into another zone. Um, it's, it's a fucking, it's a hell of an undertaking they have to go through here. If you start thinking about just how much manpower and work this is going to be. Uh, then there um, needs to be a containment, Legasov explained, there needs to be a containment structure built around the reactor itself, which will, of course, be extremely dangerous. He says there will be death. <clears throat> a general asks how many men they need. Boris says 750,000. Again, could we do this? Could, no. Is this possible? To no. Just requisition? That would be one third of the U.S. military nonstop for years. I guess we could do, you know, I say no. I think we could do it. I think our military would do it. I think that if you had to get 750,000 people who aren't already serving in the military, you couldn't yeah. do it. I mean, I, I mean, it would be very hard pressed for the military to do it just because, you know, they're deployed in various areas. They're, they're, in, they're, they're in active uh, need in various zones to put that many away to a different project inside the United States. I think Particularly, you, you, they would abandon you know, you just get the hell out of everywhere. I mean, you have to. Yeah. And I think that I, I do think our military would 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 probably meet the challenge. I do not think you could get seven hundred fifty thousand civilians to agree to do this. It's worth without well like fucking killing their family first. The re reason I mention this is that Russia, Soviet Union, is still deployed in Afghanistan right now. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. They're they're not getting their military. They're getting civilians to do this, and we see a yeah. shot later that that shows that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, Gorbachev doesn't blink at $750,000. He asks, how many deaths will there be? Um, Legasov says thousands, perhaps tens of thousands. And Gorbachev says, okay, begin at once. <sighs> the long war indeed. Anything else about this scene? I mean, I, I think Gorbachev comes out really, comes off really well in this series. Yeah. I, th I think, I think he does come off very, uh, very well in this regard. Uh, in terms of the scope and scale of the long war, uh, obviously, our cleanup efforts of Chernobyl are still continuing, and last, based on what I last read, there are still cleanup efforts that are planned through 2064, and monitoring efforts for very much long thereafter. Yeah, and your dumbass wants to go on a tour of it. You know, I don't necessarily want to build a summer home there, but a walkthrough might be nice. God knows. You are crazy. <laughs> Just walk, walking over that crate downtown, walking over that crate on the sidewalk. I'm, I'm assuming that it isn't going to reach up and grab me kind of thing. <laughs> Legasov then, ugh, a little bit of a foolhardy moment here. He approaches the guy who was staring at him in the meeting. We learn later this is the head of the KGB. His name Comrade Sharkov. Mm -hmm. Legasov asks about Yulana. He's like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Legasov says, hey, you're the head of KGB. He says, oh, yes, I am. And that's why I don't have to worry about arresting people anymore. <laughs> Good he, says, well, you're, he says, well, you're bothering with having us followed. And Sharkov goes, oh, yes, yes. But that's not so bad. People are following you. People are following them. People are following me. Everyone is being followed all the time. Quote, the KGB is a circle of accountability. Nothing more. <laughs> Legasov says, well, look, I, 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 with what the Soviet Union is entrusting me to do, you don't trust me? Charkov, gets, Charkov says, yes, but, quote, trust but verify. And the Americans think Ronald Reagan thought that up. Can you imagine? <laughs> I like that line, too. Very good. Trust but verify. Old Soviet proverb. You've talked about it on this podcast before. Mm -hmm. Legasov says that he needs her. This guy snaps, changes his disposition, looks at him and says, you will be accountable for her? He says, yes. He says, then it is done. Legasov, her name is, I know her name. Good day, professor. <laughs> wheels within wheels. Boris. Boris with a great line here. Yeah. 
That went surprisingly well. You came off like a naive idiot. And naive idiots are not a threat. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean, Very I, true. I, Very I true. Think that, I think that uh, uh, Comrade Charkoff would have not... He would have been a little bit more um, disagreeable if he thought that this guy actually knew anything or was a threat. And by know anything, not scientifically, but like within the context of their socio sociopolitical construct. I also believe if he thought to any degree that Comey was a threat, she would not. She would spend the rest of her life in a cell. Uh, I think he's just concluding that, okay, this guy will agree to her. He's not a threat, and she's just an idiot scientist, too. Fine. Whatever. Go. So Legasov goes to the jail. He walks in. Yulana says they didn't hurt her. She starts to explain. She says, ah, it doesn't matter. They were stupid. I was stupid. She reports that the outlaw won't speak to her, but she's clearly shaken up by seeing yeah. the guys dying. This is where she delivers the line about Akimov that you referenced when they didn't show us, and she just says basically Akimov's face is gone <sighs> when she saw him. <clears throat> um, potential line of the episode here. Do you want to stop? Is that a choice I even have? Yeah. Legasov asks if she thinks the fuel will melt through the concrete batch. She says she doesn't know. 40% chance, maybe. Uh, Legasov says, well, I said 50. But either way, it doesn't matter. Um, it, it just means a maybe. It's a, mm -hmm. just, it's a maybe from us. And then he, oh, the weight on him. He says, I might be killing them all for nothing. Yeah. He says, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to stop, but I can't. I don't think you have a choice any more than I do. I think despite the stupidity, the lies, even this, you're compelled. The problem has been assigned, and you will stop at nothing until you have an answer. Because that is who you are. He says, a lunatic then? He says, no, a scientist. That's a great line, Tim. Great line, and, and she's free to go. So they get up and walk out. Uh, they get, sit on a bench outside in the hallway, and she tells Legasov that Akimov says the reactor, that they shut down the reactor. And Leonid confirmed it. She said, I, I normally would just think he's just trying to cover his ass, but Leonid said the same exact thing. Then she drops the bomb that they pressed the button, then the core exploded. Mm -hmm. She says, they were adamant. I think I believe them. Legasov gets quiet. We learn why he gets quiet later. Do you, do you remember why he gets quiet here? Because he's familiar with this particular defect. Exactly. So when he hears that, he knows, I think I know what's going on here. Mm-hmm. But he says, if you believe them, then you should pursue it. <clears throat> she says, okay, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to interview uh, the other guys while they're still alive. And like I says, that's, nope. <laughs> you're not interviewing them. <laughs> um, cut to tanks going through streets. This is a, a scene I referenced before. They're handing out draft notices and they are getting their 750 men necessary to start this, this extremely long liquidation period. Spencer, what do you think you would do here? If I was requisitioned for this? Yeah. Would you uh, just go do it? Yeah, I'd probably just go do it. <laughs> Man, I mean, likely speaking, the people they're requisitioning have no real honest-to-God understanding of what personal risks they're taking. I mean, would you assume that any of them have the slightest understanding of how radiation works and how actively dangerous this environment is? No, I don't think they do. I think they know that Chernobyl's a fucked-up situation, but I don't even know if they're being told they're going to Chernobyl. I would. I think I would absolutely 100% do this. Um, I think it's in keeping with my character. Only problem is I got bone spurs. If I didn't have bone spurs, I would be doing it, Spencer. I'd be right. on the draft. I'd be going. But my bone spurs, everybody knows about my bone spurs. They, they talk about the moments of when service to your country is at its most important. 
this is one of the moments when service to humanity is a necessary thing, of where this is a problem that has to be fixed or generations of people will die. Right, and I would do it, but the bones burst. Um, we cut to a curse. <laughs> okay, a nurse, Mr. Trump. <laughs> a nurse, I didn't say that. A nurse is cleaning out a room, um, and she's clearly taking some of the materials uh, out of a room where one of the men, Akimov, uh, Leonid, or uh, Vasily, or maybe some of the others had died. And they're placing the men into wooden containers. They nail it down. They place the container, the wooden containers into a larger, what looks like concrete cement type container. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, metal. I'm sorry, it's metal because they weld it shut afterwards. Um, Ludmilla is watching. And then we see them bury the men. And then they cover the containers in concrete. And this is really how they buried those guys. Yeah, it's a haunting scene. The music that's playing, the slow reveal of the various steps they're taking to prevent what are now radioactive objects from exp- exposure to the rest of the community. It's just increasing levels of just tragedy and horror we're seeing playing out, which is kind of just the theme of this series, really. Yeah. End of the episode. Yeah. Uh, and of course, that's why the, the title is Open Wide O Earth, because of this burial. Yeah. And... The, the concept of these, what was it, you say it was 28 people uh, that need to be buried in lead-lined coffins under concrete so that they can be sheltered away from the rest. The rest of the world can be sheltered away from them. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's horrifying. It, it, utterly horrifying to me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there's, uh, whew, it's tough. I, uh, it's not a way I want to go out. Um, Okay. Uh, Do you want to say anything else about the episode before we cut to best line? Again, I think from when we watched it the first time and watched it now, I was continually impressed by the build of this show. Of where a lot of shows, like we talked about, um, uh, what's the name of that show about uh, where we're watching the murder where the first episode was so great? A Night Of. The Night Of. The Night Of had such a great first episode and trailed off thereafter. This one's just continuing to build in terms of my investment in it and the quality of the material we're seeing. I agree, but I do think that this episode was a clear break in the story, where the immediate aftermath of the explosion is now over. Oh, now well, you're transitioning to a different period. The long war begins, which makes it such a great line for this. Yeah, the long war begins. That's a damn. That's a, that's a good one. Um, all right, best line. All right, I'm gonna we, go with. We we going down the list, or are we picking favorites? Let's go down the list. Okay, we haven't done it for a while. Yeah. Forgive me. Mm -hmm. Forgive me. Maybe I've just spent too much time in my lab, or maybe I'm just stupid. Is this really the way it works? An uninformed, arbitrary decision that will cost who knows how many lives? Made by some apparatchik? Some career party man? (laughs) I'm a career party man. Should watch your tone, comrade Lukasov. It's a good line. It shows a lot about where where the two characters' mindsets are at and how far Boris has come. For me, great line that also shows again what Legosov's state of mind is. Legosov, you are here for one purpose. Do you understand? To make this stop. I don't want questions. I want to know when this will be over. Legosov, if you mean when will Chernobyl be completely safe, the half-life of plutonium-239 is 24,000 years. Perhaps we should just say not within our lifetimes. Click. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Very, very good. Um, I'm going to have to do this one. Go through it. I know what's next. The levels that some of them were exposed. Ionizing radiation tears the cellular structure apart. Skin blisters, turns red, then turns black. This is followed by a latency period. The immediate effect subsides. Patient appears to be recovering. Healthy even. But they aren't. This usually only lasts a day or two. Continue. 
Then the cellular damage begins to manifest, the bone marrow dies, the immune system fails, the organ and soft tissue begin to decompose, the arteries and veins spill open, spill open like sieves to the point where you can't even administer morphine for the pain, which is unimaginable. And then three days to three weeks, you're dead. That is what will happen to our boys. <sighs> All right. For me, I'm going to go with uh, Boris. Have you ever spent time with minors? Let yourself know. Boris, my advice? Tell them the truth. These men work in the dark. They see everything. Mm, I got one a little bit before that. You can't talk to us like that! Shut the fuck up! <laughs> Great. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful line. Give, give us another one. That was, that was short. Um, are they all like that? They're all like that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I did my Boris voice for Legosoft. Let me do it again. Legosoft. Are they all like that? Boris. <laughs> each season of each show we do, you've got one voice which is just perfect. And your Boris voice, top notch. Yeah, I'm going to tell you something. I have not done a Boris voice until we started recording this. I've never tried it, never thought to do it. I don't know why that I just started doing a Boris voice. You're doing wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, I'm going to go with, just continuing, we're still wearing the fucking hats. That's pretty good. Uh, that is pretty good. Um... Well, I mean, I'll even, go, I'll even start from beginning with it. What? They won't give us fans, and it's too hot for clothes. So we're digging the old way. This is how our fathers mind. And then look at him. What do you need? We're still wearing the fucking hats. Yeah. The KGB is a circle of accountability. Nothing more. <laughs> from the same conversation. Of course I do. But you know the old Russian proverb. Trust but verify. And the Americans think Ronald Reagan came up with that. Can you imagine? All right, do you have any more? Because I'm ready to crown it. Uh, I got a couple. Uh, it is good news. The immediate danger is over, but now I'm afraid a long war must begin. That's your vote, right? I think it's got to be, just because it sets the tone and sets the tenor for the next two ep- the next episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's my that's mine right there. Okay. Spencer's crowned his best line. That, of course, means nothing because I and I alone. Emperor, the best line of the episode segment. The best line of the episode of Chernobyl. Episode 3. Open wide. Oh, Earth. Is. Do you want to stop? Is that a choice I even have? <sighs> That's a good line, too. And it yep, really. Just... I picked it because I'm focusing on the characters. I'm focusing on the, the struggle that we're seeing with Yulana, with, with Legasov. And I think that really inc- captures where they are at in their personal journey with this mm-hmm. that it, they have they've made they've made a lot of progress they've saved a lot of lives they're not remotely close to being done they're exhausted but they know i gotta keep going mm-hmm. I, I love her line too there of where uh that you have to keep going so that is who you are yeah a, a lunatic then a scientist yep i agree okay spencer that is the recap. That is best line of the episode. That means we only have one segment to go. Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Take it away. All right, Lee. On this Wikipedia Spiral, we've previously been focusing a bit on military accidents. Given that Chernobyl was, I'll say, largely a civilian accident, it's true they were yep. using it to harvest military fuel for the purpose of making nuclear weapons, which our reactors aren't usually used for. But it was... Oh, really? Yeah. I, was... I, thought, I thought the primary... Per- well, maybe this... Both of the things are true, but I thought the primary purpose was just, you know, energy for their grid. 
Oh yeah, primary purpose was the fact that the Chernobyl plant as a whole, not just this reactor, provided about 10% of the electricity for the entire Soviet Republic of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were planning on making it substantially bigger. But a feature of their reactors was they also could be used to harvest various kinds of leftover nuclear fuel from them for the purpose of using nuclear weapons, uh, which ours aren't. We're specifically designed so they can't do that. But theirs wanted to have that secondary purpose, which is one of the things that helped make them less safe, the fact that wow. they had that functionality. Gotcha. Um, Ours weren't used for that, but as said, this was most—it was mostly a civilian plant, so it's more fair to compare this to mostly civilian accidents. Have you ever heard of the International Nuclear Event Scale, the INES? No. What is it? That's—it's a scale developed by the International Atomic Energy Agency to essentially do a quick zero to seven point scale for purpose of informing people how bad an accident is. It's not meant to provide upfront knowledge because you need to have to conduct a full assessment before you can know where it falls on the scale, but at least let us know after the fact how much did we fuck up on a, a seven-point range. Uh, it goes from zero, which is essentially someone ate a banana where they weren't supposed to, to seven, which is Chernobyl. For, on the first instance, I Is Chernobyl talk- really a seven, or is it like Chernobyl would be an eight, they just don't have... Uh, the scale came about in 1990, pretty much in direct response to Chernobyl, with Chernobyl being the most easily defined entry on the scale. Everything else after that is kind of arbitrary and political, but Chernobyl is indisputable. <laughs> Chernobyl <laughs> is the highest possible seven that they can imagine. It is sad, sad that recently another seven has been somewhat controversially also been put on the scale, but we'll get to that one in a couple weeks. For the to start, we're going to start with what is a five on the scale, which is described as an accident with wider consequences, of where both people and environment are affected by what is considered a limited release of radioactive material without clear knowledge or clear demonstration of harmful effects. So it's bad, it has an effect, but it's an effect in a way that isn't necessarily provable in the way that Chernobyl did of thousands of people dying as a result. One of the most famous examples of that happened in the good old United States in Three Mile Island. Now, I've heard of this. Okay. Yeah, it's all part of our background. It's sadly one of the moments where we all learned collectively as a people what a meltdown was, because it's one of the most famous instances of that occurring in the modern era. Three Mile Island is a plant that is located in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, about 10, about 10 miles south of Harrisburg, the capital. It is a plant that ran two reactors, each one about 900 megawatts. So about each one 10% smaller than what the uh, reactor that exploded at Chernobyl was, but still impressive machines. Of the two, reactor number one had been operating for about five years at the time of the incident. No problems, no issues, nothing else. Working perfectly fine. But on this day in March 1979, March 28th, if we were being precise, it has been turned off. Every now and then reactors have to be shut down for the purpose of removing the spent nuclear fuel that's in them and putting new nuclear fuel in. It's typical why you rarely see a single reactor plant so that they can rotate them at various times. So the one's always running. When you say nuclear fuel, are you talking about those little uh, pins that have enriched uranium? You got it. The pins, pins in the case of, I believe both Chernobyl and our plants, are encased in zirconium with graphite rods around them, those kinds of things. That which is actually used to generate the fission reaction that we get heat and energy from that we then boil water that we then used to make electricity through spinning a turbine. Turbine, not propeller. Turbine. <laughs> We're learning things together. It's a wonderful feature of this podcast. <laughs> um, 
reactor number one to shut down so they can do that defueling and refueling operation. Reactor number two, this is convenient because reactor number two, the subject of our incident, has just come online. When I say just come online, I mean it first turned on three months earlier. This is a brand new $500 million at the time reactor, which is just really getting out of its testing phases. This is the this is the highest level of technology we had at the period. It was, according to the results that were being published, address that later, at a perfect safety rating right now and perfect standards for performance. What makes this incident a little bit interesting is that two weeks before this happened, a movie was published that you may have heard of before called The China Syndrome. Have you ever heard that film, Lee? I have. China Syndrome is a pretty good film starring Jane Fonda, Michael Douglas, and Jack Lemmon concerned about a nuclear meltdown occurring, in that case, at a fictional plant outside of Los Angeles. The term China Syndrome is actually a real phrase. It's meant to be hyperbolic, but it refers to the idea that if a meltdown occurs at a great enough extreme, it will melt down into the ground and start heading towards China. <laughs> now, realistically, it's not going to melt all the way through the Earth. There's nuclear fuel in the core of the Earth. It's not constantly melting through anywhere itself. But the concern is that it will melt down into the groundwater and cause all kinds of varieties of problems. It's more that it's headed towards China rather than realistically thought to get there. What's interesting is that after this film came out, the nuclear industry went on a full-fledged PR attack, that this film is fictional, it is hyperbolic, it could never happen like that. This is a purely made-up enterprise for the purpose of inciting public fear and making revenue off that kind of dog-whistle form of entertainment. This, this PR campaign had been in full swing for two weeks. When a certain incident occurred in the evening, on the early morning of March 28th, all these incidents happened at like 4 a.m. I don't, I don't know why that works that way, but it does. Yeah, it's never like 3 o'clock on a Friday. It, it would be a lot more convenient if they did, but presumably, I've, I guess it's limited personnel on plant, or they want to do more risky things when fewer people are drawing on the electric grid. One of the features yeah. of uh, our reactors is that most of the reactors in the United States, I think all today, are what are called pressurized water reactors. I think you've discussed this a little bit, a little bit on the podcast already, but for the sake of just a reminder, you've got two major kinds of reactors in the United States. Pressurized water reactors or boiling water reactors. Main difference being, are you putting the core and the water that's immediately around it under extreme amounts of pressure? In the case of Thermal Island, 2,000 PSI, which is a hell of a lot. Purpose of that is that it allows you to put the water up to far higher temperatures, which allows it to have a much greater effect in terms of generating steam and creating more electricity. It also lets you make it that the actual nuclear area of the core, where the radiation and all the inter uh, reaction is occurring, is isolated. The main water lines that are used to produce steam don't actually ever connect to it. They're in a separate system around it that just receive the heat. That lets you have a much more minimized area of effect in terms of potential radiation. It also allows you to have a much smaller area of the core. A lot of people, when they see these nuclear power plants, they see this giant steam tower. They think, oh, that's the reactor. No, it's the very tiny building that's next to it that you can typically not see. Because these are pressurized reactors that are allowed, allow things to be a lot more concentrated. Part of the problem of everything being pressurized, though, is it involves a lot of little finicky tools and a lot of little finicky lines with very narrow flows of water and steam. This means that if you're, say, like in our area of the country, the Stone Belt, there's a lot of minerals in the water line that could eventually block it. And if you can imagine, the process of getting extra mineral deposits out of tubes in a radioactive area is not necessarily something you want to do very often if you can avoid it. Now, this is all occurring in Pennsylvania. They're not officially in the Stone Belt, but they still have concerns about this kind of mineral buildup. 
So what they do is they run all the water that goes through the secondary system, the system that does not go through the core, that's not used for the cooling process, that's just used for steam, through what's called a condensate polisher. Essentially, it's just a big metal vat with lots of little resin beads in it that catches all the minerals so the water comes through just H2O. Now, this, plant's been op this reactor's been in operation for three months, and they've already realized there's a bit of a problem going on with this particular device in the sense that it gets blocked up. If you've got a big, a big metal jar which is full of lots of beads and it's used to catch minerals, it's going to get blocked up either on minerals or beads. That just happens. And so you need various parts of your system designed to knock those things out of the way. They'd originally thought that they could just increase the water flow going through this to essentially shoot them out of the way and block the valve intake, but quickly found that it didn't have enough water pressure to do that with. Yikes. You think that would have been something that they would test given that that was their main way of doing it. Now, yeah, our, and, and remind me again, what, what year is this? This is, a, this is March 28th, 1979. Okay, okay, all right. So th this is way back in the day. This is a full seven years before Chernobyl happens. This is before either you or I were born. But we're going to yeah, see over the yeah. course of this how much more technologically advanced our reactors were and our systems for managing them compared to the Soviet Union even most of a decade later. Right. Not in this particular feature, though. Instead, our primarily uh, military-trained reactor operators have jury-rigged a system to try to clear this thing out, uh, using essentially the equivalent of compressed air, which, fine, that works. Uh, should have been probably built into the system from the start. What happens at 4 a.m., though, and which they did not realize, is that a mix between this air intake and the water intake have been leaking nonstop for the last three months of this plant's operation. They either didn't know this or just kind of shrugged and went, eh, it's not that much of a leak, it's fine. The problem is, is that through this mix of air and water flow, the water leak is now being directed up into the air intake, which eventually blocks it. Air intake is an important part of all the system working in terms of moving the steam around. And so when it's blocked, the automatic computer we have running this whole system goes, oh shit, that needs to be cleared, otherwise I can't send steam through the system, shut it off. And so shuts off the secondary water loop. This also reads a signal saying, okay, no more steam is going through this, shut off the turbine. Because the turbine's not going to accept any new steam and vent what existing steam you have so that we can clear space and not build up pressure in the secondary line, which is again, tiny little tubes that you don't want to break. Okay, makes all, sense. All this is automatic, all this is not necessarily something you want to happen every day, but perfectly normal. It leads to a colossal amount of thousands of pounds of steam all being released out of the, the steam tower at the same time. Again, it's 4 a.m. It would have been loud as shit, but it's not a problem. None, all this steam is done through a secondary loop. It's not radioactive. Again, this is a normal safety response. The reactor operators look at this and go, okay, well, computer's having a bit of a problem with this. Let's go check it out. One of them was actually even in the room when he saw the condensate polisher trip off. So they know what's going on. They also know that as a result of the steam no longer going through the secondary loop system, the core pressure itself is going to start to go up as the energy it's generating from steam, whatever else, is just going to be concentrated and building up there. This is, again, not ideal, but there's an automatic response to this of a what's called pilot-operated relief valve clicks on. This is essentially just a little safety valve that opens up to release pressure and closes when it doesn't need to release pressure anymore. This is in the core area. It's just releasing essentially a little bit of steam and extra pressure as part of the process of keeping the core pressure stabilized so that they can fix this problem, get everything else running. Again, this is all perfectly normal, and all of this has occurred without any degree of human intervention. This is how automated and technically advanced our cores are at this time. 
Wow. And I, I can't help but juxtapose that to the RBMK reactor. Yeah. <laughs> which required so much manual effort, had none of these built-in safety feature features that automatically tripped. I mean, basically, they had a button that dropped the <laughs> fuel yep. rods or the uh, um, stabilizing it's, rods in. Yeah, and that's the, it. The emergency scram button. You also saw how many guys were in that core. And that was even like late night personnel. There were like, what, 10 guys in the core or whatever else that were standing around each other when the, everything was going down. Plus the people in the control room. I mean, yeah, yeah this, it's nuts. Our control room at this time has four. Everything else is automated. This is a very much computer-controlled system. Even 1979, big-ass computer, but it's still doing its job. So wow. all our reactor guys looking at this board, which part of the problem we discovered later for this instance, it's the board is way too big. Even on normal functioning, it's got 40 warning lights that are always going off, which for four guys is a bit overwhelming. But they're mm -hmm. looking at this and they think, okay, this is all perfectly normal. We're, we know where the problem is. We'll go fix it. React the core is maintaining itself. After a few minutes, though, the computer goes, "Huh, not maintaining pressure as much as I want. Looks like temperatures are going up. Emergency valves online. This is unexpected. This is not this is not part of the normal operation necessarily because there is an emergency. Again, all automated. There is an emergency water line that goes straight to the core that just dumps thousands of tons of water in it when uh -oh. it de when it deems it's necessary." Now, our reactor operators go, this is concerning. Yep. Why is this happening? This should not be happening. Um, but here's the problem. When they designed this core, they thought it would be way too expensive and difficult to keep an actual water gauge in the core. Okay. They didn't think, they thought having to replace that from it being melted by all the heat and radiation all that often would not have been very fun. So they put it instead in a separate device next to the core which they were convinced that since it was essentially higher up, it's essentially the kind of steam generator, it's a pressurizer, which they use to kind of monitor the pressure and keep a little fee, extra feed line to release pressure in, that it's higher up than the core. And they figured, we monitor the water level in that, it's higher up than the core, that can, we can use that to essentially monitor where the water level is, because it's never going to be higher than what the core is, because it's higher up in the air. They're looking at that and saying, well, the water level's fine in that, the computer must be wrong. And so at like 4.05 in the morning... <laughs> hey, computer's never wrong. The uh, reactor control operator goes, eh, I'll turn off the emergency system. Now, again, this is a system that was sending thousands of tons of water through the core. Um, and he turns it off. But they're a little bit concerned. Because Peter clearly thought that something was wrong. So they decide to check this pilot-operated relief safety valve and make sure it's doing fine. Because one of the possible problems that the computer could recognize is that that thing is not closing, if it's just constantly being open and spewing coolant around the room, that could lead to a certain degree of problems in the core of maintaining temperature. So they go look at it, and they see a little light on the indicator on, the, on their big board that just says pilot-operated control valve, and it has a light on it. And they go, okay, well, the light's on. That means that it's still closing and working fine. That's a bit of a problem because that's not actually what that light means. That light actually just means there is still a signal being received from it. It says nothing about whether it's closed or not. It says nothing about whether it's working or not. It's just literally the battery is working. Not necessarily the most useful little light. There is no light on this board that actually says whether that valve is working or not. Um, but to do an extra check, they decided to check the temperature on the valve, which they actually do have a little temperature gauge on it. And they say that it reads something like... 240 degrees. Ooh. Now, 
Fahrenheit, right? Yeah, Fahrenheit. Well, I'm used mostly Fahrenheit temperatures like where, where I can remember. Um, now, the guy goes, eh, that's a little above normal, but just shrugs and says, it's fine. It must still be working. If he checked his manual, it would have said anything over 200 degrees means that it's broken. You've got a problem. You need to fix it immediately. But part of the problem was is that this valve had been broken essentially since the moment that the plant had been turned on. It had always been leaky, and so it had always been above 200 degrees, and so the operators had just kind of gotten used to it. This is problematic. <laughs> this is not something you should ever get used to when your safety valve is leaky in a nuclear power plant, but they got used to it. They got used to the fact that it was always going to be above operating temperatures, and so they did not notice at this moment that essentially it had wedged itself open and was just spewing coolant into the reactor room rather than going back through the core. Whoa. Yeah, that's not good. That, that's not what that's supposed to do. And this is the reason the core went, okay, I got a broken system. I need to fix this. And at this right. point, you, fi you figure this 1979 core is getting really frustrated at its stupid humans for messing it up. Because it's got this. It knows what it's doing. It's recognized as a mechanical fault, and it's trying to fix it. But the humans have the override switch, and the humans have pressed the override switch. Humans decide to continue to mess things up to a certain degree. It's so funny as you're describing this. Like, if the people had just done nothing. It, well, <laughs> there's, I mean, we've already seen two moments of where if, A, the humans had just let the core do its own damn job, they would have, it, the, core would, it, the core would have essentially buried itself in water and things would have stopped. The core would right. have shut down, like, you saw when, like we saw in Chernobyl in the last episode, of where it would have ceased operation, and it would have taken a couple days to fix it, which isn't great, but this is the core recognizing this is a problem that I can't fix normally, that I don't think you can fix while it's in operation. I got to smother this. Yep, shut it down. That's the appropriate response from the core, but the humans went, no. Second time the humans could have stopped this is they realized the safety valve had a problem because there's a separate block valve, which essentially functions as a relief on the safety valve. So you can control it remotely from there in the case the safety valve doesn't work. Again, this is a pretty well-designed system with fallback plans but it requires you to recognize what's going wrong and either trust the computer or recognize what signs you have from your manual say what you need to do. They did not flip this block valve. If they'd flipped the block valve, again, it would have controlled the system. And again, the core probably would have shut down for a couple days. Not great. But again, the problem would have stopped. They don't. It gets worse. As a result of the fact that essentially they now have a core that is running on very limited supplies of water, uh, through just the primary system rather than the secondary system of the emergency line, they start to notice a substantial amount of vibrations. <laughs> like the freaking reactor room several hundred yards away is starting to, starting to vibrate. That's not good. You don't want your control room vibrating due to something that's happening in your reactor building. And they know from their manuals this means that the reactor coolant pumps that are connected to the core that move the coolant through are starting to probably deal with excess steam from the fact that Again, you are boiling off the coolant you have in your core because you're not sending any new coolant through there. This is not great. They realize that these incredibly multi-million dollar coolant pumps can't break. They look at their manual and it says, in the event of vibration, shut down the coolant pumps. Because the manual's working under the assumption that you've already flooded the core and are letting the computer do its damn job. So begrudgingly, because they know this could be problematic when they still don't fully get what's happening, they shut down both the coolant pumps. This is a problem because it means now no coolant is moving through the core. The only coolant that's in the core is the coolant that you left there originally. There's no fresh stuff going through. You're not even rotating the hot stuff through the system anymore. 
It's literally just what was there originally. Uh, this is not great. This is not great at all. It does stop the vibrations, but it starts to cause another problem in that all the coolant in the core is now boiling off and the core itself is starting to be exposed. Look out. Yeah. This is what leads to a meltdown because even though, and I'll point this out of uh, uh, something else that I forgot to mention that occurred really early on, once the pressure started to go up, another thing the core did at the same time it started to flood the flood in the emergency coolant or just a few minutes or two before, it also, again, automatically pressed itself the scram reactor button and shut down the reactor. This is, again, all automated. The computer itself recognized, okay, pressure's going up, temperature's going up, no steam's going through. This plant is essentially non-functional right now. I'm going to turn off the core so we have an easier situation to manage. And so it itself presses the AZ button, which, unlike in a, a Rosovic reactor, actually does stop the core without causing a massive increase in energy and an explosion. However, even doing that, a core maintains heat for a long period of time. It still maintains about 10% of its heat for hours afterwards. So you need to keep it constantly flooded with coolant, hence why the emergency system che checked in, so that it's just lingering remaining heat from the reaction cooling down doesn't itself melt the core. Because they haven't allowed the water to go through, because they've shut down the secondary pumps, because the safety valve is broken, because they're not listening to the computer about the emergency system needing to go into place, and because they've now shut down the reactor coolant pumps so that no even warm water is now moving through this thing, there's nothing stopping the core from just melting in on itself because it has no new coolant going through this at all. Now, all this has happened at 4 a.m., and all this has taken now about two hours. And it's after about two hours the first radiation alarm goes off, the first of a couple of serious alarms go off. The first one is the sump pump at the bottom of the reactor building. Now, any of us who have owned a basement in North Carolina or anywhere else where there's a lot of groundwater knows that a sump pump is what you have at the bottom of your house to prevent it from flooding. It means you're building up water in your bed or your house or anywhere else, and this pumps it out and sends it to some safe place so that you don't have problems with uh, various water damage. The reactor building has this too, because again, this is a well-designed system that is designed to prevent any degree of human error and have it all automatically addressed. And so this sump pump goes, okay, warning, I'm pumping water out of the core. That shouldn't be happening. Also, it's a lot of water, and I'm having a hard time starting to manage this. This should have been a clear sign that, again, there is a leak in the system. The safety valve is open. Your coolant's flowing out. Nothing new is going to the core, damn it. But they don't notice it. The plant is starting to get annoyed. <laughs> This, I'm really anthropomorphizing the computer here, personifying it, because I actually start to see it as being really pissed off at the damn humans. Because it's now, its reactor building is flooding while the core itself is getting nothing, and the humans have not recognized it yet. So it, and what I assume is a bit of an act of desperation, wanting the reactor building itself not to be flooded with what could be at least mildly radioactive feed water, decides to pump it out of the room to a secondary building. This isn't great because the secondary building is out of, it's outside of containment. It's just a concrete encased structure outside of the core. It's not supposed to do this outside of desperate situations, but I'm guessing at this point the computer's just getting pissed off and frustrated. It sends the, the water over there and continues the warning light to the humans to try to advise them that this is a problem. I'm trying to tell you this in different ways. It's a problem. You need to fix it. They don't notice. Part of the reason they don't notice is, A, at this point, there are over 100 warning lights that are all going off at the same time at the core, with no message on the warning lights as to exactly what the nature of the warning always is, 
or what warning occurred first or what warning needs to be prioritized. And their fallback system for this is a printer, which prints each warning message two and a half hours after it's happened. That's a bit of a flaw in the system. That's not ideal. Uh, it's part of the problem. This was a 200 baud band printer from 1979. And, you know, printers today suck. Printers then really sucked. And so it's just gotten really behind by all the warning messages it's having to print. So all of this is really going to hell in a heartbeat. It has been enough hours now, though, that there is a shift change. And the new staff coming in at 6 recognize that something is not occurring normally. They're apparently not advised of this by the leaving staff, but they see, okay, well, this isn't good. Call in the various plant management, who may have already been previously paged, and even call the uh, company that built the reactor to ask them what the hell's going on. Upon calling the company, the first thing it advises them is, did you close the block valve? Because it figures right away the safety valve is off. They immediately close it. Problem of doing this two, three hours after the incident, though, is that block valve has now been one of the sole sources of any water remaining in the core at all. By closing that, you're essentially shutting down the whole system, preventing even its ability to vent steam that's now coming off the core. So now you're just building extra pressure. Yeah, so now you're just, the energy's going way, way up, yeah. Now you've just invented a pressure cooker where your reactor right. used to be. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, they already had a previous radiation alarm from, you know, the dam radioactive water pooling at the bottom of the core. Uh, now they've got a full-on, your fuel rods are melting radiation alarm. And this is what actually creates the meltdown, right? This is actually, we are now in a full-on meltdown. Previously... Yep. Th- Everything the system had done had been trying to maintain this core despite mechanical problems, despite some legitimate design problems with respect to warning messages. And, but in spite of all, with those things and with now a massive amount of, we'll just say human error, there's no water on the core at all. I'm going to blame the help desk. Help desk. That's a bad <laughs> point. That's who I'm blaming. Help desk meant well. Its advice would have been really great like 30 minutes into the incident. Two hours after, it's probably the worst thing they could have done. Or at least a very bad thing that could that could have occurred. All the radiation alarms start to go on now. As they realize that, well, as they should at this point realize, the core is melting into itself. It is, there is nothing to cool this down. The zirconium is burning off these rods. Krypton hydrogen gas is forming in the reactor building. This is not good. At this point, out of desperation, they decide, well, there's still a lot of water in the pressurizer but I guess I'll turn on the emergency system for a few minutes. They turn it on for seven minutes. And then they turn it off again because the water's building up in the pressurizer and they're again going, well, there's a lot of water in the pressurizer. That must mean there's a lot of water in the core even though radiation alarms are going off. And I can't flood the core because that's not something I'm allowed to do. Okay. Um, it, of course, does nothing to stop the fact that the core is melting because seven minutes of water poured on this core, as you saw with Chernobyl, means you're just making a hell of a lot of steam and not cooling it down at all. It's not until out of desperation at 8 o'clock, four hours after this thing, this incident has started to occur and hours after the core has been melting, that they finally, very begrudgingly, just turn on the uh, emergency system and leave it on. It takes two and a half hours of this emergency system going nonstop, pumping thousands of gallons, pouring into the core for the water to even level to even rise in it. 
Otherwise, it's just straight steam from the heat that's coming off this thing. Okay, to- I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. How much longer we got here? Because <laughs> we're a half hour into this. Almost done. Okay, go. Okay. At this point, the core is finally shut down. But the problem is, is that as a result of all of this, as a result of water being shipped out of the building, as a result of a lot of radiation coming off this core, uh, radiation has been released into the outside environment. This leads to a lot of people being very concerned and uncertain as to what occurred because the plant does a really shit job of advising people what the risk is. A lot of conflicting messages. Eventually, the governor orders a voluntary evacuation, which leads to about 200,000 people leaving the immediate 10-mile radius around this plant. Which, given that that includes the capital, is a lot of, is a lot of people and a lot of people that are potentially moving. And a lot of experts going in to examine what the scale and scope of this was, uh, including... President Carter himself, a former nuclear engineer, goes to the plant a couple days later to personally tour it and be reassured himself how bad it was. He quickly deduces that it could have been worse. Honestly, in terms of the amount of radiation released, not that bad. Best as we can tell from every epidemiological study I've looked at and read about, the and this is funny, the average amount of radiation released in the 10-mile radius was the equivalent of a chest, a chest X-ray. And I don't mean that in Chernobyl terms. I mean an actual <laughs> chest X-ray. So if you need a checkup... Yeah. The most they can determine that any one person received was about one-third of their annual background dose. All of these are relatively low levels. They're significantly lower than an average radiation worker is allowed to receive in a given year. But... It led to no small amount of lawsuits of people claiming various injuries as a result. Some studies have shown that there has been a, non, a non-significant increase in thyroid cancer in the surrounding community, but they can't tie it back to the incident. They don't see a reason necessarily why these low radiation levels would increase it. And no, no one dying from acute radiation syndrome, right? No one, no one was exposed to any, different, to any degree to that. Again, the worst any one person got was one-third of their background dose that they would get normally from being in life, being exposed to environmental systems, or having a chest x-ray, or having an MRI done in a given year. It's not got a lot. It. Yep. The things we learned from this. Um, as you saw, there's an automatic system in place, but it, it relies on the humans understanding what's happening. So one of the first things they realized from this incident was... Your big controller board needs to be simplified and needs to be clear. If you have 100 warning lights going off at the same time, if you have one printer telling you what the problems are, that does not work for humans to understand how they need to fix the system and deal with a system which can quickly spiral out of control. So that's one of the first things they learned. They need to simplify this. Point number two, they need to better train their humans. Um, Most of the humans they had currently working on this plant were former Navy personnel who had worked in submarines, the primary nuclear system that we had in the time. They'd been advised as part of maintaining submarine nuclear reactors that the worst thing they could possibly ever do was flood the core, to let the core go solid. Because if a core shuts off when you're underwater, like 200 feet underwater, and the submarine stops moving and starts sinking, that's a really bad thing. But when it's an existing plant above ground, not as bad. And also an existing plant, which is something hundreds of scales of times larger than this, the uh, little submarine plant, generates a lot more excess heat that can melt into itself a lot worse than a submarine's reactor can. So, letting these Navy personnel not have updated civilian training was a dumb idea. And so they've updated that in the future to advise them how differently these systems work and how differently they need to understand these things. The other thing they advised people now as well is that basic maintenance needs to occur and you need to be accurate about your maintenance reports. As you can see, there were a lot of things in this plant that, given it was only three months into operation, should not have been breaking, should not have been leaking, and people should have been willing to go in and fix them and address them. 
These were things that were not done. These were things that people were allowed to be cavalier about. And they resulted in no small amount of cost. As you said, the actual human cost of this appears to be minimal to non-existent. We can't prove to any degree it's led to hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements, or $150-$200 million worth in settlements from various people suing claiming injury. But as far as we can tell, the only major injuries that occurred were people lost business during the mandatory evacuation. Can't prove anything else. The actual financial cost, though, has been high and is still not done. It spent We spent 14 years after this incident trying to repair the damage that was done to the reactor. It's never going to function again. But just remove the spent nuclear fuel and remove the re- excess radioactivity. Because at its worst, we were getting radiation at a level that a worker in the near, near and around the reactor building, we were getting radiation at a level that if a worker had been in the plant, they would have gotten their max legal annual dose in something like 20 seconds. There was a lot of radiation coming off in the core of this building because it was literally melting down. It also led to the fact that about 30 tons of this nuclear fuel inside this, this inside the reactor either melted or started to partially melt. About 10 tons of it pooled at the bottom of this reactor core. Didn't get through the steel, didn't even approach the concrete, but it's in there and had to be removed. For 14 years, at the tone of about a billion dollars of then money, we cleaned up this reactor building. We removed all of the excess radioactive water that had been shipped to an outbuilding. We got this thing to a stable enough state that we could leave it. We left it because we deemed it more cost-effective to wait to complete the repairs, complete the cleanup operations, until reactor number one, which never shut off and continued to function throughout all of this period, itself was put into decommissioning mode. That is legally set to occur up to 2034. The plant is legally allowed to operate. But in a report that was recently released, the owners of the plant are currently planning on shutting it down in September of 2019 due to it being outcompeted by recent lower cost levels of natural gas production. So this is a cleanup operation that may once again be in full swing as we begin the decommissioning of the other functioning non-damaged plant. Now, as said, this is a five on our international nuclear event scale. It is the best as we can tell worst nuclear accident that has occurred in the United States. I think we can tell from this that in spite of a lot of shit going wrong and a lot of human error, this is a wholly different animal than what we're seeing in Chernobyl and the Soviet Union at the same time. This is a much better designed system. It's got its problems. It has its genuine U.S. flippancy with respect to basic maintenance. But it is automatic. It is controlled. And this is 1979. The practical effect of this was to lead to even greater safety standards being put on these plants as the public thoroughly turned against nuclear power for decades afterwards to the point that we hadn't had a new power, nuclear power plant authorized for construction until 2012, some 30, more than 30 years after the incident, just due to the amount of public resistance to nuclear power. But we learned a lot. Nuclear power plants are significantly safer, have significantly better training. This was one of the kind of necessary accidents of where no one was necessarily harmed. An incident was occurred that just shut down one plant, and we learned from it. We abandoned a certain degree of capital attitude, and we learned what problems were existing from what essentially the risk of a normal accident occurring. As this right. is a perfectly natural series of events that can spiral out of control if you don't understand that it can happen. We now okay. do. We've learned, and we've gotten better. All right. Well, uh, that was an interesting Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week, folks, because this was uh, this one got away from him. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> Spencer, you've officially done more than half of the podcast. That's what I'm here uh, for. <laughs> on this accident. You know what this is? This is that one. This is the Wikipedia spiral where you're like, you've you've reached the 40 tabs. Mm-hmm. 
It's, it's <laughs> off off the screen. That was the 40 taps in the first hour, sir. I've gone beyond that since then. <laughs> I'm giving you shit, but that was really good. Um, yeah, and I, I've, you know, like Chernobyl, I'd heard of Three Mile Island, but I didn't know what the hell happened. And I would have bet you a lot of money that people died there. No. So, uh, that's but, interesting. There's a lot of accusations of some, you know, birth defects. There's a lot of accusations of thyroid cancers, but not in a way that we can really accurately document, prove, or really have a clean, clean reason to think it is directly tied to. Hmm. All right. Well, anything else you want to cover about uh, Three Mile Island or Chernobyl uh, Episode 3? No, no. This nuclear event scale was fun. It gave me plenty of instance to talk about for next time, and maybe I will even try to be more brief as we're going through them at that issue, that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's why we love you, Spencer. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, appreciate you uh, tuning in. We'll be back next week with Episode 4 of Chernobyl. Till then.